Well, your place of work, the school your children attend, the social groups in which you mix, and even the gym in which you sweat, you wouldn't be part of any of those groupings, I don't think, unless they met with a kind of certain standard that you had expectations of. Let's imagine, if you can, you turn up to a job interview and the person interviewing you was kind of dressed in a kind of really shabby way. And and as you went round that firm, that organisation, every employee that you met was rude, uh, maybe even disloyal to the other people in the staff. Imagine then, perhaps if you're a parent, that you go round a school you're thinking about sending your child to that school, Uh, what if all the children in that school were ill-disciplined and rude to you as you looked around? Now then, imagine if you go to the gym, and as you go there, uh, they're showing you around, but they apologise because, yes, 90% of the machines are broken. And as you go around the pool and and enter the shower area, you see that it's really rather shabby and disgusting, actually. You see, we have standards. We have fairly high standards in our lives, many of us. And we expect a certain level of things, don't we? And what the Apostle Paul, when he writes this letter to this young church in Philippi, and he's saying in this really critical verse, look at verse 27 with me if you can, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'll give you a bit of background if I can for that in just a moment. Paul's instruction regarding their conduct is now going to be kind of the focus of this letter for a fair old while through to about halfway through chapter 2. Everything follows is about the church living out this instruction. Now we'll see what worthy conduct looks like in just a moment in relation to the gospel of Christ. But let me forewarn you if I possibly can. The standard that Paul expects of the Christian is very high. Nothing mentioned in these uh, packed four verses, though, is unattainable. He's not setting a kind of an impossible standard at all. The expectation, therefore, for the Christian is high, but the standard of the gospel itself, well, that is infinite. It's utterly amazing. Let me summarise these first couple of verses. In our first point, it's not the first point on sheets, but it's going to come up hopefully. And it simply is this, that we are to walk worthily. See, Paul's instruction in that verse, verse 27, is to live, or it could be easily translated, to walk the Christian life in a manner that is befitting or worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not suggesting that to anyone that he writes to, that they are worthy of the gospel themselves. None of us deserve anything from God. But as a result of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, Paul is saying, you have got to live a life that is worthy of that. In grateful thanks of that. Now at this point, I guess it's fairly important that we understand what the gospel is. Now, literally, the word gospel means good news, but it's concerning Jesus Christ. It's good news because it proclaims that Jesus died, that he was resurrected from the dead. And both of those historic events, according to scriptures, 
that foretold those two events hundreds of years before. And the most amazing thing, as he writes about the gospel in this letter, the people who received this letter could turn to people and say, yeah, I saw that. There were eyewitnesses around at the time. In Jesus dying, though, there is an effect of those two historical events. In Jesus dying on the cross, he takes on himself a punishment, a justice that our sin or rebellion deserves against God. Now, put that in a kind of very British middle class way. Basically, it's our ignoring of God for many of us. Jesus died and he rose. And the effect of that is that he then, if we put our trust in him, offers us new life with him. It begins now, but goes on for eternity. And this can be ours if we trust our lives now and our deaths, not to ourselves, but to him. And in so doing, receive through faith forgiveness and eternal life. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's utterly amazing. Hence the most recorded and covered song in history says... I found that out on the radio too this week. I was very excited about this. It says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a a rebel like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind to the gospel, but now I see it. It's a response to the gospel. Note then the gospel, therefore, is a work that is done. It's utterly finished. It's completed Paul is not calling the Christians in Philippi to kind of, kind of muster up their strength, to kind of work harder, to live worthy lives, to earn something, forgiveness and eternal life. He's saying, no, that work is finished, it's complete. And now you have to trust that work. You've got to put your faith in that complete work of Jesus Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Actually, verse 27 should read something like this. There's a little bit of a translation missing in our, in our Bibles here. It should say something like, uh, conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I've put that little point down on your, oh, there we go, it's up there already. As citizens of the gospel. It's a word that actually, if you flip forward to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul uses it to describe the Christians in the church in Philippi as citizens of heaven. That is where their citizenship lies. That is, that's their true home. That's the place they find their identity in. That's where they belong, if you like. And so Paul here, in the beginning here of chapter, the end of chapter 1, he is using this evocative kind of metaphor there, this image, to, to make sure the readers think, ah, citizenship. Where am I a citizen of? They're citizens of Philippi, of course, as many of us are citizens of southwest London or there or thereabouts. But like many of us here, if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also citizens of heaven. So Paul is calling them to live in this Roman colony called Philippi, but in a manner that is worthy of their heavenly home. Now, we know historically that the people of Philippi were so proud because they were citizens of this Roman colony, Little Rome, as it was known, Philippi. 
It was a great city of culture. And the culture, they were so elitist and proudly Roman. And therefore, Paul's encouragement here is basically saying, live counter to that culture. So their Lord was not to be Emperor Nero. Their Lord was to be Christ. Now, the Christians, even we see in the evidence that even in this town, they were described as atheists. The Christians were described as atheists because they refused to accept that Caesar was Lord, but only declared as Christ was Lord. And so Paul is essentially saying, live out who and what you really are. You're citizens of heaven, so live like it. And if you do, that will be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So their whole lives, you see, the entirety, as we were talking about those two songs, their whole lives are to be given out and given for their citizenship on earth, pointing towards heaven. As a result, the gospel was to show in every aspect of their lives, this applied to every individual within the church, in every facet of their lives. But look at the high standards that Paul expects, especially at the end of verse 27. Follow with me there. Then, whether I come to and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. You see, the expectation for the Christian uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel, the expectation is you'll do so whether someone's looking over your shoulder or not. Whether your friend, whether your spouse, whether your boss, whether your colleague is present or absent. Do you live a life, if you're a Christian here today, that is worthy of the gospel? What do you convince yourself uh, that you are getting away with because no one knows? Conduct and, and life in a manner worthy of the gospel is lived out irrespective of the audience. Here's a few questions. Maybe you can ask yourself these if you're a Christian here today. Do you only work hard if the boss is in the office? What happens when you're in the bedroom alone? How far do you let your thought life wander? See, what Paul is calling for here amongst the Christians is consistency. Irrespective of the audience in response to the gospel. How that's lived out comes at the end of verse 27. Again, have a look. Then, whether I come and see you and only hear about you in my absence, we looked at that, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. You see, walking worthily as a Christian, living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, I think there's two things particularly spelled out here, and they work together. Standing firm, contending for the gospel. Let's look at both of those. Just work with me here for a second. So firstly, stand firm in one spirit. Here Paul is pointing them there to the work of the Holy Spirit. They're to stand firm, aided not by themselves, not by their grit and resolve, digging deep to combat, to kind of combat the pressures of the culture around them. No. Rather, they were to look within one another to the work of the Spirit in all of the gathering of Christians in Philippi. And every Christian here will testify to that wonderful work and gift of God's Holy Spirit 
present in them as we trust the gospel. It brings us together corporately. So therefore, what we see here, many of us are just going nodding, aren't we? We stand as one. Christians stand as one, but we see the stakes are high. We're to stand, what? To preserve the faith of the gospel. We stand as one to preserve eternal things. So we stand firm in one spirit, but also contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And I'm really sorry here. We have to turn to a sporting analogy, and everyone else will groan because that's kind of the default here, I mean, with me. Uh, but I can actually go here to the Greek and say, ha, this is a sporting analogy. I'm sorry, I can't get away from it. The Greek word is athaleo. And you know what we get from that. So here we go. You know, it means to engage in an athletic contest, okay? So it's teamwork he's pointing to here. It's military or sporting working together. So perhaps, I don't know, let's translate it for us today. We're probably thinking of a tight scrum, aren't we, in rugby? Or we're thinking of the German football team who methodically work all together as one as they beat down every team in the world. You know how it goes. But the fact that Paul mentions contention shows that he intends to convey a couple of things here. Firstly, that something is worth fighting for. Secondly, that they must expect opposition, otherwise there's no point in contending. And thirdly, they must be willing to work together to fight for it. We contend as one. For what? For the faith of the gospel. But we do not take up guns or swords. Our fight is physically peaceable. But we stand to keep the faith and we contend so that the gospel might be proclaimed. And Paul says that we're to do so without fear. We see that in verse 28. Follow with me down there if you can. Now that seems very easy to write, doesn't it? Much harder to live out. We must think, I guess, as we prayed just a moment ago, of Christians around the world who face persecution, Syria, Iraq at the moment. If they deny their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they live. If they don't, they die. Can you really have a sword on your neck without fear? Well, Paul calls the Christians to stand firm and contend for the faith. Look at verse 28, let's read it. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. It's interesting, isn't it? That as Christians stand and contend, Paul seems to be pointing towards a kind of a, a double sign which is going on here. Our united stand together as Christians, our willingness to take whatever comes our way humbly, without fear, beginning of 28, will be a sign. Be a sign. This will be, I guess, a sign, let me contemporize if I can, to, a sign to those who mock you at work. Maybe if we think further afield, a sign to those who chop the heads off Christian children in Syria as they're doing today. And we'll do tomorrow probably as well. This is a sign to your colleagues who take the mickey out of you when, when you mention church tomorrow morning in the office. And that you trust Christ. It will be a sign to your friends, to your neighbours, when you dare to invite them along to church to hear the gospel message. It will be a sign to your friends when you go out for drinks after work on a Friday evening and some of them get you know, a little bit drunk and, and you choose to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It will be a sign. 
It'll be a sign. And the sign, I guess, is something like this. That you know and trust the gospel that is you're eternally secure. And they are not. That the eternal God essentially has your back and no one eternally has theirs. Or whatever they may say or do, Christians have nothing to fear. The completed work of the gospel has secured us. We're citizens of heaven. Uh, What is the worst thing at that point that our friends can do? Our neighbours can do? Our colleagues can do? If you sit here today and you are not a Christian, can I very gently ask you some questions, if, if possible? Who essentially has your back eternally? Who's going to stand with you, for you, on these matters of life, of death and eternal life? Who are you going to trust with your life and your death? Please consider this. If if you are standing alone, and you may be very, very happy in that right now, can I suggest this very quickly? Work with me on this. I think you have everything to fear. You will fear to greater and lesser degrees a whole number of things. You'll fear about your family and your job and your security financially, your looks, everything, your health. Let me tell you why, I think. Because essentially they hang precariously in the balance because you find your identity in them, I think. We all do to some degree. Of course, we're all different and we combine those in different ways, but if you're a citizen of this world, and therefore the loss, therefore the loss of any of those things and all of those things is your greatest fear, Your life is in your hands. And as I said, you may be very, very content in that right now. But also your death is in your hands. And the weight of all of that together is huge, isn't it? And so I guess what you do is you cling very tightly to everything. See, the Christian, on the other hand, a missionary once described it, we hold all of those good things, and they're all good things, but we hold them if you like, on an open palm, that they may be taken away at any time. And we cling to one thing very tightly, and that is the gospel and the truth of it. And as Paul encourages here, as a result, we can't be frightened in any way by those who oppose us. What can they take from us? We've got the gospel. I think actually the fear goes the other way. Let me see if I can spell this out. You see, as Christians stand firm and contend for the gospel, it signifies to those around that Christians are eternally safe and and secure, and those who do not know Christ are not. Look at that verse. I mean, it's very striking, isn't it? This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. I'm sorry about these words. They are pretty forcible, aren't they? But why is that? Why is he saying that? Let me, let me try and give you a little example that I've experienced. I know many of you have here because you've told me this. When you go out for drinks with your friends as a Christian, it's interesting. Some people would choose to have a few too many drinks. And if you choose to remain sober in those situations, living that manner, life that is in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's interesting how many 
How many people will then get very cross with you for remaining sober? Have you ever noticed that if you're a Christian? Just for choosing not to get drunk. I think they see a sign. I remember a drinks party after work uh, when I was a teacher. And uh, a number of my colleagues actually began to shout at me. I'd, I'd said absolutely nothing. I'd just chosen not to get drunk. I wasn't doing anything uh, that would be judgmental in any way, shape or form. They were good people. They, many of them would, I would have considered my friends. But when you see you stand firm and when you contend for the gospel, whether in word explicitly or implicitly by action, it's a sign. It's a sign. Your friends may not understand what it means, but they feel it. And they'll say things to you, if you're a Christian here today, you're judging me, they'll say to you. And they'll point the finger at you. And I will say honestly, no, I'm not. I'm not judging you. But I will know in my heart and will be thinking, well, someone one day will. So please turn to Christ. When Christians choose not to engage with the gossip in the office, people can get quite agitated by that, can't they? Why? It's a sign. Let me summarise this, if I can, using not my words, but a theologian called Don Carson. He helpfully puts it this way. He says this, just to summarise this whole section, the, the most appropriate way to live in response to the glorious good news that has saved and transformed you is to behave in such a way with other believers that you actively contend for the faith. Such conduct will prove to be a sign of assurance for you and a sign of impending judgment to those who will not hear. This leads us to our second point. It's not a second point. It's really a conclusion, so you can stop sweating. And uh, it is this, to suffer thankfully. It's in these last two verses. Let's read verse 29 together, uh, if we can. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now, I've titled these kind of, just this little section, with that absurd title, to suffer thankfully. Because the word granted in that verse there actually should really read, uh, it's been graced to you. What Paul is therefore saying is that suffering is a gift. To suffer for Christ is a gift in Paul's mind. Now, I'd love a week to explain this, but we've only got a few minutes. But that's what it's saying. It's saying it's a grace. It's a gift of unmerited kindness from God to you. But I want to ask, does it feel like that when your friends are mocking you? Contending and standing firm, we kind of like that. Athletic, military terms. And we're going, yeah, we can cope with that. Let's go. Mm. But what about this bit? Suffering for Christ, does that seem like a gift? And boil it down, I guess it really comes to this. It's a matter of self-interest. Who do you put first in your life? Who's Lord? Who's King of your life? A Christian is to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel putting Christ above everything. And in so doing, suffering therefore becomes an inevitability. But Paul is taking it one stage further here. And he's saying, no, it's confirmingly joyful. The first century listeners, can you imagine them? Sat in Philippi, they received this letter. They knew what this meant. 
And if you're quaking in your boots, let me just give you a bit of a picture of what they will be feeling. They knew that to stand for Christ as Lord and not Emperor Nero as Lord would mean they would be declared an atheist by Rome. It would mean they would suddenly become sport. They'd be thrown into lion pits. They'd be rolled in tar and used as torches in Nero's gardens. They knew the gravity of these words. Jesus himself said to his followers that they were to take up their crosses. If they were to be a true follower, they were to take up their crosses and follow him. They knew the cost of what it meant to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. As did the children of Iraq, who were refusing to convert to Islam. Essentially, this is the heart of Christian discipleship. This is normal for the Christian. You see that in Paul's own testimony. Look at verse 30 30 with me for a second. Suffering for Christ is normal. I've put down on your sheets there, on on the screen, anyway. Uh, Look at that, verse 30. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul is there. He's languishing in chains in a Roman prison. He hasn't got Sky TV in his cell or any kind of other home comforts that we allow our people to have. He actually expects to die there, we've seen at the beginning of chapter 1. He was the most beaten and persecuted man in the whole of history that we ever know of. Many historians would tell us that. Yet even in the midst of all that pain, all that struggle, all that suffering for Christ, he does not give in, but he considers it a gift. It's been graced to him. So he stood firm, he contended for the gospel, he preached the gospel, and suffering for him was normal as an expectation, as it should be for us if we're Christians here today. Let me just take you to another little example from the Apostles, Acts chapter 5. You know it well, I'm sure. Paul and the Apostles, sorry, Peter and the Apostles are stood in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and as a result of their contention, of their proclaiming of Christ, they are flogged by flagellum. But they come out in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, and the Apostles left the Sanhedrin, it says, rejoicing, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name that is of Christ. They were rejoicing. Because they suffered. It sounds absurd, doesn't it? Can you imagine them staggering out? And their skin was just peeling off their backs. You know, history tells us that as they were flogged, that sometimes you could actually see their spines. You imagine them sort of looking at each other and going, hey, they thought we were faithful enough. They thought we were faithful enough that they would flog us. Let's rejoice about this, brothers. It's confirming. It's confirming in their hearts. Now, we're not to look for suffering. Not at all. But when we dare to make Christ known, it is inevitable. We may not get flogged in London. That's not going to happen. But mocking will come. The critical word from friend, family, that, oh, you're fundamentalists, you, aren't they? Aren't you? You'll be labelled as the judgmental kind of bigoted one of the office maybe, but note firstly who's being the judgmental and bigoted one in claiming that of you. Secondly, note that you are walking worthily. 
and that what you're facing is normal for a follower of Jesus Christ. As C.S. Lewis put it this way, he once wrote this, we are promised sufferings. They were part of the program, he said. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. So if you're sat here and you would call yourself a Christian, if you have experienced no mockery, you've experienced no suffering in recent times, please do ask yourselves gently and prayerfully, why not? Why not? Because biblically it seems inevitable and normal. And most importantly, it is a confirming grace, gift from God. Now, if you're sat here and you would consider yourself not a Christian, as I said, you're, you're, you're very welcome to be here. It's lovely you're here. You're probably thinking these Christians, they, they're mad. And you're right to a degree. But please consider this. Why would relatively intelligent, rational people accept this as part of their lives if it comes to nothing? Ask yourselves, are you so convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not apply to you is a load of rubbish myth? Are you that convinced? Are you so convinced that it's just not worth asking a few questions about? As the regimes and empires and leaders throughout history have tried to eradicate Christians through persecution, what do you think the result has been? If it's just a myth, surely, you know, if you think rationally, think about that, surely a big empire could crush the Christian church throughout history. Of course, that's what you're thinking. The converse is actually true. The more the church has been persecuted, the more the church has grown. And there is not a period of history or an area of geography where that has not been true. Academics called missiologists will always state that. The greatest growth of the church worldwide has come over the last 150 years. In that same 150 years, we have seen more Christian martyrs than all of the previous 1800 years combined. Let me close. I'm going to go back to the first two words of the passage because I missed them out. And I think they're very helpful. Look at what they say. Whatever happens. I just wanted to make the point, and that is this. There's no get out clause. If you're ill, if you're introverted, if you're lonely, if you are anything... Whatever happens, if you're a Christian here today, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's not to add to the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel, standing firm in the gospel, contending for the gospel as we've seen, and in so doing, expecting an inevitable suffering for Christ. And rejoicing in that, because that is a confirming grace from God. Look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are incredibly sobering words. But they are also, in many, many ways, words to help us rejoice. They make sense of many lives here. That we 
although we face uh, all sorts of mockery, all sorts of uh, you know, jibes at us in work, in our neighbourhoods, as we make Christ known, as we live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, we thank you that you are gracing that to us, that suffering to us. Yes, and it's confirming. But I pray also that as we stand firm, contend for the gospel, that many people around us would see that beauty, would see the wonderful truth of the gospel in us and long to know more. Heavenly Father, if there are people here and they do not know you as Lord and Saviour, if they're trying to do everything in their own steam, and I'm sure they're having a great time in many ways, but the end is not secure, and the weight of all of that is, is perhaps a great, is very great. Lord, for, for those people who do not know as Lord and Saviour, may, may you just work in them now, and may they want to know more. May they ask some questions. We pray all these things. In the name of your powerful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.